How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 123 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, well, TGIM. Thank goodness it's Marauders, because, boy, <laughs> did we need this issue. Now, I'm not going to waste any time. Let's hop right in. This is Marauders, number 14. Had a January 2021 cover date. Story is Exoswords, chapter 13. Written by Jerry Duggan and Benjamin Percy, with art by Stefano Caselli. Art, I'm sorry, Colors, Edgar Delgado, Letters, VCs, Corey Petit, Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman, Edits, Beasel White, Sabolsky, Cover Price, $3.99. This one went on sale November 4th of 2020, the same day as that mostly reprinted uh, X-Men number 14. I wonder if that was by design, because I figure if you bought one, you'd buy both, and, uh, well, one of those books will bring you back to the store the following week, and uh, it's this one. It's this one. Now, we open on an info page, and it's the menu for Saturnine's Tournament Eve Feast. Remember, our heroes were invited to this during Exosword Stasis. Unfortunately, we uh, Wicked Smart X fans needed to get a refresher on the fact that Krakoa and Araka were divided by the Twilight Sword in the interim. Now, it's a five-course meal featuring delicacies of Otherworld, uh, which sounds to me like it would probably taste very bland and leave you feeling quite bloated, but the chef will declare their work as genius, nonetheless. We got a double-page spread of creds, then a roll call, and... Whew, we got a lot of names here. Let's do it. Storm, Wolverine, Magic, Captain Avalon, Betsy Britton, Gorgon, Cypher, Apocalypse, Kid Cable, War, Death, Pog, Urpog, Iska the Unbeaten, Solemn, Bay the Blood Moon, Red Root the Forest, The White Sword, the Creepy Summoner, Annihilation, and Saturnine. I almost forgot we were reading an X-Men comic halfway through that list. Uh, let's get to actual comics content. We officially open with the sequential art portion of this book by checking in with Mad Jim Jaspers at the Crooked Market. And, well, uh, it's exactly that. It's a marketplace. Uh, this is where our hostess will be getting much of the food for the feast. We jump back to the Citadel, where Wolverine is having himself a drink and think. He's not happy about breaking bread with the champions of Araco at this stu- witch's stupid party. And indeed, we pan out from here to see that, uh, yes, everybody, good guys and bad, are going to be accounted for at this dinner party. And I tell you, I love this already. This is, uh, it's very surreal to see it like this uh, after these, uh, these characters have been built up as antagonists and threats. Now we see Storm, and she's being chatted up by Death and War. Which is to say, our Anubis-looking friend and the Firestorm-looking one, and it's a great bit of dialogue here. You see, War is really trying to get under Storm's skin, but Death can tell that Storm doesn't fear them. 
Storm playfully tucks a flower behind Death's perked chihuahua ear and suggests that uh, he's going to be a problem. Uh, she then breaks away to talk to Logan. Off to the side, Bay the Blood Moon calls Cypher a soft boy, which, uh, while rude, isn't completely untrue. Over to Storm and Wolverine. They're hanging out on the edge of this roof here, and Logan assumes that Aurora is here to talk him out of doing what it is that they have to do. But instead, she simply tells him not to miss. I'm telling you, this is really, really good. Uh, the, the doors to the Hall of the Fallen Banners opens, and seating cards are handed out to our champions. We got ourselves a run-in with Magic and Pog or Pog. Ilyana just wants to know which card is going to send her to her, quote, chair of asses. Uh, Pog or Pog says Pog or Pog sits wherever Pog or Pog wants. I figure, you know, the name cards, they were a nice touch, but uh, I guess uh, there's something to be said for Southern hospitality not being appreciated. So, as Pog or Pog, Pog or Pog's, Pog or Pog's way into the dining hall, Wolverine, Storm, and Magic watch him closely, trying to see if they can deduce a weak spot in Pog or Pog's scaly coat. This is going to keep coming up during this issue, and I love it. I think this is a awesome bit of detail here because it makes complete sense it makes absolute sense that while they're here to break bread they're also here to maybe do some strategizing love it from here we get a double page spread of art showing the hall of fallen banners in all of its glory with all of our champions awkwardly congregating now the floor looks to be made of like solid water And there were mermaids swimming underneath This is really really good Awesome visual Great scene here We see all the champions As well as some notable Otherworld residents Including Jim Jaspers and a Fury Also we see Roma and Merlin And it looks like they're having themselves a chat It's good stuff, good stuff Saturnine makes some introductions For the benefit of our champions And probably to the benefit of any Poor new reader who uh, somehow, you know, started reading X-Men with X of Swords. Uh, we get Mad Jim Jaspers, of course. Roma, she gets an introduction. Vesperidae, the colony queen of Hot Hive, the insectoid, gets, a, uh, gets an introduction. And Famine, uh, the new acting delegate of the fallen kingdom of Dryador. And, I mean, Famine at a feast. Huh, that's pretty clever. Now, it's worth noting, she refers to our heroes as the champions of Krakoa, which is now the third title they've been given. First, they were the champions of Otherworld. Then they were the champions of Avalon. Now they're the champions of Krakoa, which, honestly, they probably should have been called from the start. What are you going to do? Editing is hard. Um, at this point in the evening, Wolverine is already starting to feel a bit ornery. So I guess that starlight booze packs a punch. After listening to Saturnine introduce the dinner, he kind of snaps. He turns his attention to Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian, who is about to enjoy a non-alcoholic beverage, and suggests that, hey, you know what? If only you'd put out for Opaluna, this could have all been avoided. If you remember, they were halfway in the sack back in Excalibur number 13. Brian reminds Wolverine that he's a married man, to which Logan don't care. He still believes that Brian could have put a stop to this had he made other, other choices. You know, Saturnine is smitten, so just give the witch what she wants, and this problem might just go away. All of this death might be avoided. Betsy tells Logan to piss off. 
Wolverine reminds the Braddocks that they've got children fighting in this contest. Magic, Cable, Cypher. Children who might never get the opportunity to grow up, all because Brian wouldn't step up. I mean, he's got a point in a way. Uh, I think it's. I think his anger towards uh, Brian is a... Uh, I think it's just he needs someone to be mad at. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on. We next check in on Magic and Gorgon, who are making mental notes regarding the handedness of their potential opponents. Really great attention to detail here, and totally what these two would be doing. Now, they figure that war is right-handed, and death favors his left side. Then, together, they wonder which hand Iska the Unbeaten favors, and decide to, hey, let's go chatter up and find out. While they talk, Gorgon and Ilyana both drop their wine glasses to see which one Iska instinctively goes to grab. Naturally, Iska turns out to be ambidextrous. Ambidextrous. However you say that word, she can use both hands is what I'm trying to say here. She then flips the script and then drops the glasses herself to see which hands are hero's favor. Well, Ilyana just magics up a limbo portal to catch the glasses without revealing anything. They all smirk and suggest that this contest is going to be fun. Though, once Iska is gone, Gorgon tells Magic that, uh, uh-oh, this is going to be a problem. We get an info page from Mad Jim Jasper's notebook. Not much more than ephemera here for me. Next, a harpist begins to play. And as the cover suggests here, Storm asks Death for a dance. And the watery floor opens, and they dance into the resulting whirlpool. It's quite an effective scene and a great visual. Death remarks that Storm is the only member of her group to never have actually tasted death. And uh, that's not a euphemism, considering this fella's name. And now that I think about it, I think Death might be right. Storm might be the only person on the good guy's side who hasn't ever died. Uh, If we look at her teammates here... Wolverine was just uh, very publicly dead, right? He had his own miniseries to uh, celebrate his death and return. Magic died of the legacy virus back in the long ago. Doug also died back in the long ago during Fall of the Mutants. Apocalypse killed himself not too long ago in Excalibur. Betsy died early on in Extreme X-Men when dead was still dead, i.e. before the Buffy guy decided it wasn't. A Cable, I, I suppose, is iffy, considering that this is a new young version uh, I honestly can't remember if Brian ever died, but I gotta assume. Same with Gorgon, who at the time of Hoxpox was a completely new character to me. I'm assuming he's probably died at least once, because, I mean, outside of Storm, who hasn't? Uh, it's really, really nice scene, and uh, as our man Damien says, everybody in the Marvel Universe eventually falls in love with Storm, and it looks like death is no different. Now, when the dancing is done, our combatants take their seats at the table, and uh, Wolverine is still feeling frisky. Uh, Our attention is placed on the Firestorm-looking one, sprinkling some powder onto Wolverine's steak. Not sure what that'll lead to, but I have some suspicions. Anywho, after Saturnine stops talking, Logan stands up, lashes out at our host witch for putting together this contest in the first place, and we close with Wolverine killing Saturnine. Like running both set of claws clean through her. We wrap up with a quote page, Wolverine basically saying everything dies. And uh, that is where we leave it. Next episode, we're sticking with Marauders. It's Marauders number number 15. Thank goodness for that. So let's talk. Let's talk about this issue. And I mean, oh boy. I mean, just when I thought I was out. 
just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. This was fantastic. I loved it. Much needed. Just, I mean, boy. Have I said that we should shift the head of X-Crown off of Hickman's head and onto Duggan's in the last ten minutes? Because we totally should. I mean, look at what we got here. We gave these half-baked characters from Morocco actual personality. And it wasn't even all that much dialogue here, but we can tell more about them in just one line of dialogue in Marauders than them posing time and again in the other books in this uh, in this event. So well done. I mean, now there are... If, I don't want to say it actually feels like there are stakes now, because it still doesn't. But I mean... Let's look at let's look at some of these confrontations we have here. We've got Pogger Pog, who is just totally out to lunch, isn't paying attention to anybody around him here. He's just so up up his own butt, right? He's just paying attention to his own comfort and doing whatever it is that he wants to do. I was going to do that whole line in in Pogger Pog speak, but I don't know that I could do it. Uh, I like the fact that. Our heroes are looking for weaknesses. They're looking for soft spots. They're looking for ways to exploit weakness. And you have to assume that some of the bad guys are doing the very same thing. We're just not privy to it. Iska the Unbeaten, that, that little bit with uh, with Gorgon and Magic. I mean, what did we know about Iska the Unbeaten? We knew she was a member of the Brotherhood of Dada, basically. She's got the mutant power not to lose. And she switched sides. That's all we knew. That's all we knew. We didn't know if we didn't know anything about her personality. We still don't know much about her personality, but at least now she kind of has one. And the fact that uh, they had that that little uncomfortable moment, the three of them, where it's like they each got a leg up on the other, right? They drop the glasses. Iska catches them both without spilling a drop. Then she drops the glasses, and Magic does a limbo portal. Boom! Doesn't spill a drop. And there's that little awkward moment there where they're just laughing, and it's like, okay, okay, this is going to be a little bit more interesting than I uh, than I imagined when we started this. And I thought that was great. I thought that was great because it's it, it almost. I'm I'm not going to talk about stakes. It almost shifts the motivation, right? It's it almost becomes like an intrinsic contest because we have someone like Iska the Unbeaten, and we got two hard-headed characters like Magic and Gorgon. And maybe, to them, this contest becomes a little bit more personal. Can I beat this person? You know, am I able, to, am I strong enough? Am I, am I swift enough? Am I skilled enough to beat this person? Such a strong little scene, because it was a brief scene. It wasn't much, but it told so much. Really, really well done. Um, the dance between Storm and Death felt like it came out of nowhere. Right? I mean, uh, looking at the cover of this book and knowing what we know about death, which was to say nothing other than the fact that he looks like a cool Anubis, how did he and Storm start dancing? Well, we got that story here. We got that story here. They had an uncomfortable conversation. They each seemed to have the other's respect, but not fear. And they had a moment before uh, before the blood's going to be shed. I thought this was very, very well done. And while I'm still, of course, rooting for our heroes to win in the contest, now it's like almost like I might have a little bit of empathy for these uh, Araco uh, champions here. I mean, Death doesn't seem like that bad a dude, right? He seems like an okay guy who's doing what he has to do, just like our team is, just like the X-Men, just like uh, the Krakoan champions. They're doing what they have to do to win this contest. 
and it's a uh, I don't know it just feels a lot more subtle than I thought it was going to be going into a contest of champions sort of environment with a fairly lazy and uninspired build to this point this was good this was really good um let's talk about let's talk about Wolverine let's talk about Wolverine here getting getting a little blitzed and uh Kind of flipping out, kind of just uh, becoming kind of stuck in his own head here, where he sees the easy way out and is frustrated at the fact that they didn't take it, right? He lashes out at uh, Betsy's beautiful brother Brian for for not putting out, because he figures that uh, had Brian put out, this would all go away. I think that's a reach. I do think that's a reach. I mean, Saturnine... I mean, if Saturnine wanted, I mean, she could basically do whatever she wants, right? It's like kind of her power. She can snap her fingers and uh, this whole thing can go away. But she didn't. She didn't, right? Um, So I'm not convinced that had Brian, you know, dropped trowel for, uh, for Saturnine that this would all go away. But I understand Wolverine's point of view in that he needs someone to blame, Right? Do you blame the witch for being a witch? You can't, because that's what a witch is. A witch is a witch, right? Do you blame the Arako champions for fighting for what they believe in? Well, you can't do that either, because then you might as well be, you know, blaming the Krakoan champions for fighting what they believe in. It's all the same thing. So he needs to find a way to... He needs a boogeyman. He needs someone to blame. He needs somewhere to direct his anger and uh, and it's Brian. It's poor Brian here. I will say that it does kind of fall into Wolverine's character that he would bring up the children. He uh, brought up Magic and Doug and even Kid Cable as examples for why this is uh, a pretty bad uh, kettle of fish here. And that does fit with Wolverine's established character, um, even going back to Schism. You know, Schism, the whole... The whole rift between his side and uh, Cyclops' side was that uh, well, Cyclops seemed indifferent to putting children in harm's way, where Wolverine was like, uh-uh, can't do that. You know, that we need to protect the next generation. Because I think at the time, we didn't know if there was going to be another. So he was really motivated to protect uh, the young, where Cyclops didn't really seem to care all that much. He was just like, okay, another soldier, do your thing. So in that regard here, Wolverine thinking in the interests of the children makes complete and total sense here. Um, I want to say that this was probably the first time yet that Otherworld actually felt like a lived-in place. Because we actually had characters here. We had... It wasn't just a setting. You know, it wasn't just a backdrop. It wasn't just this weird, you know, map full of circles that... uh, aren't really all that clear. We had characters at the Starlight Citadel, and it felt like a place that operates. It felt like a place that works day in and day out for the first time ever. And uh, I credit a lot of that to our creative team here, because nobody else has seemed interested in making this feel like a pl- like a tangible place, you know, for lack of a better term, of course. It's just, oh, it's that magic place where magic things happen. Here, it's like... We're actually having human emotion and human conflict here that isn't Saturnine pretending she's, uh, 
you know, Veruca Salt on, on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? She's not just a petulant brat here. She's just doing her thing. It worked. It worked. Um, the art, fantastic art. Uh, I love that double-page spread of the Hall of the Fallen Banners. Such a great scene where I swear, looking at it, you can hear it. You know, you can actually hear awkward conversations and hustling and bustling. And it was just so, so, I mean, this issue, it brought me back. It brought me back and thank goodness for it. (laughs) It was very, very good. We'll wrap this segment up by talking about the cliffhanger here. Um, Wolverine looks to have killed Saturnine. Something tells me that didn't actually happen. Uh, Something... I have a sneaking suspicion, even just looking at the, the cover of the next chapter of X of Swords here, I have a sneaking suspicion that this this death ain't going to stick. Um, we did get our attention drawn to the fact that Firestorm was drizzling some powder into Wolverine's food, so maybe this is like some sort of a fever dream. Maybe we're going to open the next issue and Wolverine will be like laying on the floor, foaming at the mouth, talking about visions he's having or something like that. But uh, it was effective as a cliffhanger. It was definitely effective as a cliffhanger, and uh, maybe a little bit of a uh, like vicarious wish fulfillment, uh, because if someone would take Saturnine out, maybe this would all go away and we can get back to actually telling stories about the X-Men again. But uh, maybe it's just me. Who knows? But uh, I overall, highly, highly recommend this issue. Uh, maybe even if you're not even following X of Swords, this is just really good character stuff here, and... Uh, for the first time yet, these these awful, boring, generic ciphers from Morocco finally get a little bit of personality, and that was a that was long in the making and was much appreciated. So, high recommendation. Check this issue out. Really, really good stuff. Put me in such a good mood, and let's continue the good mood by dipping into the mailbag here. We don't have much to cover today, but uh, we do have a couple of great letters here. First, starting with Damien, and he's talking about Hellions number 5, which was a wonderful, wonderful issue. Damien says, This is delightful. If you had told me a year ago that I would love a book featuring Mr. Sinister, Jamie Braddock, and Quanon, I would have never believed you. Marauders remains my favorite X-book, but this is so close behind. Zeb Wells is so consistently good, and Carmen Canero is phenomenal. I'd never seen her work before, and she's even outdrawing Steven Segovia, who has been slaying it on Hellions. And after heaping all this praise on issue 5, I think issue 6 is even better. It's a comics miracle. I tell you what, I was looking forward to the next issue as soon as I finished issue 5, but now I'm looking forward to it even more. This was a great, great issue here. Um... And I actually might have to take back something I just said about this issue of Marauders, where I said that it was the first time Otherworld felt lived in. But this issue of Hellions also made Otherworld feel like a real place where people actually live and go about days and do things, instead of just, uh, you know, be magical. <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a comics miracle here. Uh, Wells is... Ah, boy... I've said it before, I'm sure I'll say it again Because I do repeat myself a lot I wanted to dislike this dude so much Back in the day But, uh, boy uh, I couldn't be happier to be wrong Because this is a phenomenal book here Marauders and Hellions Boy, two dark horses of this line I would have never, ever Assumed that either of these books Would have any legs Or would be something that I'd be looking forward to And, And here we are I... 
I've told the story when we first started this journey, I was only going to buy X-Men. You know, before uh, following Hoxpox, which I did not follow at the time, I saw there was a new X-Men number one, and it was enough to make me go, okay, maybe I'll give the X-Men another try, and that was all I was going to buy. Could you imagine if I'd only bought X-Men? That would be one of the most unsatisfying (laughs) reads ever. Reading the 14 issues of X-Men we've got here in a vacuum. Oh, Lord, that's like... That's like one of the circles of hell, I think. That is not pleasant. Not pleasant at all. (laughs) Damien wraps up with, So until everyone gets a fabulous cape, make my next last. Well, there are some very fetching capes out there, aren't there? Uh, That's one thing that I will give editorial. Um, Keeping Jamie Braddock in Mr. Sinister's weird, tassely cape throughout this thing has been uh, very unexpected. I figured that was just going to be brushed under the rug, never mentioned again, but every time we've seen him since this issue of Hellions, he's wearing the thing. Uh, definitely thumbs up to uh, to the art team and uh, editorial for remembering that this actually happened. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that wonderful, wonderful issue and giving me high hopes for what's to come. Thank you so much. Next, Evan is going to talk about my secret shame that I revealed a few episodes ago. He says, there's no shame in enjoying Gwenpool. Yeah, I know. (laughs) He continues, I read the first few issues of her original and have about half of the run. Her presence and Quentin Quire's combined with some nostalgia make me curious about West Coast Avengers, but I haven't gotten around to reading it either. Yeah, I like Gwenpool. I I feel so dirty and yet like like a thousand pound weight has been lifted off my shoulders and just saying that. I never thought I was going to be taken with this character, but oh man. I only read one issue so far. I read uh, Dead, uh, Deadpool, no, Gwenpool Strikes Back, number one. And uh, now it's on my list. I got to go track down the rest of it because I had so much fun with that first issue. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, I only flipped through uh, one issue of the new West Coast Avengers, the uh, the the first issue where Jeff the Landshark shows up, uh, Avengers West Coast Avengers number seven. I flipped through it. It doesn't look like something I'm going to be all that into, but if I do see the first issue uh, for like cover price, which I think I, I have seen it for cover price. If I see it for cover price, I'll snag it, and I'll give it a look and uh, give it the old college try because because uh, Kelly Thompson uh, just... Blew me away on Dare, uh, not Daredevil, Deadpool. Boy, I am marble. Ma- I, I need to sleep. That's that's my problem. I need sleep. Uh, <laughs> Kelly Thompson on Deadpool was a wonderful surprise, and uh, really looking forward to seeing seeing more out of her. So maybe if I see that West Coast Avengers number one for cover price, I'll snag it and give it a goo. Evan continues. Your fascination with Jeff the Land Shark reminds me of my near instant transformation into a fan of Jaro, Batman's newest ward in Scott Snyder's Justice. League. Now, Jaro, for those who don't follow DC Comics, is basically Sorrow the Conqueror, a tiny version, or not, maybe not tiny, like a hand-sized version in a jar. Very cute and very fun little character there. Uh, Evan continues, maybe they can meet up if Marvel and DC ever bury the hatchet and produce a Deadpool-Harley Quinn crossover. I'd be more interested in Jeff and Jaro, but the Deadpool-Harley thing just seems like a license to print money. You know, I'm so surprised they haven't done that. I, it's like a no-brainer, isn't it? It almost writes itself. Uh, it, it would be, I, I, I'm fairly confident it would be the biggest book of the month, if not 
the biggest book of several months if they did a Deadpool and Harley Quinn crossover. I mean, could you imagine? And it's not like continuity is all that tight on either side of the uh, of the nation right now, DC or Marvel. So, hey, stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. But if it does happen, uh, I'd like to say that I'm too cool for it. But no, I'd be there. I'd be there for it. <laughs> now, Evan wraps up with, until Marauders gets relaunched under the title Grim and Kitty, make my next last. Well, I tell you what, Grim and Kitty made me laugh on more than one occasion since reading that, so thank you for that. And also, thank you for, for, for understanding my secret shame of being a newly converted Gwenpool fan and uh, an obsessed fan of Jeff the Landshark as well. So thank you so much, Evan. Um, if anybody else would like to write in and tell me that I have nothing to be ashamed of or to shame me for liking Gwenpool, please feel free to do so. You can find me a couple of different ways here. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, and you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could join in the conversation on Facebook, where sometimes I actually share some pictures of Jeff the Landshark. Uh, that is 90s X-Men, our little group. And uh, if you want to hear more noise, you could do so at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. I'm in much, much better spirits than I was uh, last time I wrapped up an episode, which, uh, that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. I'm looking forward to what's to come here. We got another issue of Marauders ahead of us. I think, uh, I think we might be hitting our stride here, and I'm really looking forward to seeing more character development and uh, world-building where it actually feels like it matters. So, looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time and including me in your day. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching